0: You're listening to a sermon from the Pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 27, And this morning, we're reading together verses 1 through 26. You'll find this on page 936 of the Pew Bible. We're looking at Acts chapter 27 and verses 1 through 26. Hear the word of God. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There, the Centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off cnidus and as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Surtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, and they began the next day to jettison the cargo, And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now I urge you to take heart. Well, the Apostle Paul has testified before Felix, Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, and others. He has borne witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And having done so, he was sent by ship to Rome to stand before the Emperor. He was in the custody of the centurion Julius, who was of the Augustan cohort. This was an imperial regiment most likely serving as the emperor's bodyguard. And perhaps Julius was in Palestine on important business for the palace, we're not told. But it would be no surprise, if so, that he would be entrusted with the command of the prisoners heading back to Rome. Luke records for us, as we just read, various details of the voyage, which was anything but smooth. A violent storm threatened to destroy everyone and everything on board. And Luke is going to tell us that the ensuing shipwreck would delay their arrival in Rome for months. Throughout the entire trip, God's providence is at the forefront. He ordained everything, such that Paul and all the passengers were delivered, and he also made sure that the apostle Paul would stand before Caesar. Isn't that amazing that in his mercy, the Lord would make sure that even the emperor heard the gospel, and it would either awaken his conscience to flee from the wrath to come and drive him to Christ, or it would leave him inexcusable. Have you ever wondered, as we read through this passage, what so strengthened Paul in the midst of that violent storm? When everybody else on board was in a panic, Paul seemed to exude confidence. What sustained him? What steeled his nerves? What distinguished him from the rest of the crew that made him stand strong? I think he mentions two connected and inseparable things that served this very end. Look with me at verse 23. This very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And that's it. That's the secret of his courage. He belongs to God and he worships the Lord. In other words, his courage was based upon his covenant relationship and his covenant privilege. Of course, the angelic message had assured Paul that all those traveling would be saved. And I think in that dark and dangerous hour, in the midst of that storm, that message would have been welcome. I'm sure it was helpful to the crew, knowing that they're not going to die. But I don't think that's what strengthened Paul. Because temporal mercies like that are to be appreciated, but they're temporal, they're not lasting. As the waves grew and the ship was tossed and all hope was lost, it was not the angelic message. The reason that Paul's faith stood firm in the valley of the shadow of death was the fact that he belonged to God and he enjoyed the privilege of worshiping and serving him. And I want us to look at each of these components a little more closely in the time remaining. On the one hand... Paul's faith was strengthened by his covenant relationship. Look again. He first mentions the God to whom I belong. And that language of belonging is covenant language. We are God's people. I think you and I are familiar with this idea, even in our own experience. I could say, I'm in covenant with Linda. We belong to each other. And this... This belonging is by virtue of the marriage covenant, and it's very special. We are solemnly committed to one another, and there are certain rights and privileges that go along with that. Paul says each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. And his own wife and her own husband is not ownership, it's covenant In terms of the covenant, a wife belongs to her husband and a husband belongs to his wife in a special, unique, exclusive relationship. That's covenant. So in the same way, by virtue of the covenant of grace, Paul belonged to God. Very special. And I think it's helpful to understand at this point the biblical perspective of a covenant. What is a covenant? Very succinctly, my professor told us, it is a solemn commitment with divine sanctioning. Well, what does that mean? Divine sanctioning. He is the witness to the covenant, and he is the enforcer of the covenant. So it's a solemn commitment with divine sanctioning. Okay? A promise is made, a pledge is ratified, and an assurance is given And it binds. It binds us. And there are only two ways to treat a covenant. You can keep it or you can break it. That's it. Keep it, break it. We are in covenant with God who made a commitment to redeem us. It's a covenant made first with Jesus Christ and in him with all his people. And God promised to save poor sinners by the blood of his own son. (laughs) That's incredible that he would make a promise like that. It was his commitment to accept his son's blood as ransom for his bride. And that bride would be made up of believers from every age and place of the world. What a covenant. As the head and the husband of the church, Jesus fulfilled the law and he satisfied divine justice he perfectly obeyed, he vicariously died, and thus he redeemed his bride. Isn't that wonderful? He performed the obedience that she owed. He endured the punishment that she deserved. And on that basis, in this covenant agreement, God is pleased to be our God. He was willing to accept the satisfaction from Christ. He could have demanded that from you. You have to die. You have to shed your blood, satisfy divine justice. But he didn't. He was willing to send Christ, his own son, to die and satisfy the law's demands. And he was willing to require nothing of you and me but faith in this mediator. That's it. Oh, and there's one more thing. He was willing to send his Holy Spirit to work in us that very faith. So it's all a gift. As Paul would say to the Ephesians, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So as Christians, isn't it wonderful that we're in this covenant with God? That we belong to him? We're told that God never lies, Titus 1-2. Elsewhere, we're told that it's impossible for God to lie. And thus, on this covenant, we may depend, and in His promise, we may trust. And if you're a member of this covenant, you have God's solemn commitment. He will save you, He will give you eternal life, He'll bestow upon you an unimaginable inheritance. And his love will be forever set on you, and he'll never leave you and never forsake you. That's his solemn commitment. And in the midst of that violent storm, it was this covenant relationship, I believe, that sustained Paul's faith. His peace and his contentment were rooted in the faithfulness of the Lord. Perhaps you remember what Solomon said in his prayer of dedication for the temple. I quote him. He said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you, in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants. Solomon understood that God is true to his word, faithful in fulfilling his promises, committed to his people. And this is what gave Paul such tremendous sense of security, even in the midst of a violent storm. God is unchangeably true to his commitment. When commitments are being broken all across the landscape today, God is faithful. It's a sure foundation upon which to base our Christian faith. And even if every creature in heaven and earth is opposed to everything God says to us, he will make sure it's kept. Because as the psalmist says in 126, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. So if by covenant God guarantees our salvation, then our salvation is certain. And the storms of life may rise up against you. And the waves of providence may threaten to overwhelm you. Whether it's grief, bereavement, affliction, I don't know. And yet as those sailors made it safe to the land, so you shall come safely ashore. It's like we confessed, isn't it? What is your only comfort in life and in death? Well, it's that I, with my body and my soul, whether it's life or death, I'm not my own. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The body's going to die and decay. You can tell us as a physician, it's going to die and decay. We're going to put it in the ground. Our souls, though, will arrive safely in heaven. He said that he wanted to join us so that he could prepare to die well. And if we're part of the covenant, we can do that together. But the question is, well, how can I know that I'm within the covenant? How do I know that I'm a covenant member? That's the question, right? Well, it's not based on how you feel. And it's not based on what you've experienced. It's based on the rock-solid promise of our covenant-keeping God. He says that if you sincerely trust in Jesus and receive him as he's offered in the gospel, that if you sincerely desire to turn away from sin and to follow Christ, you're in. You're in. All that the Father gives me, said Jesus, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. The word of promise is proclaimed from the pulpit, and the sacramental seal is displayed at the font and the table. He assures us. You hear of God's covenant in his word, and he confirms his covenant in the supper, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's why the supper is described in our standards as a covenant renewal ceremony. A covenant renewal ceremony as we partake the covenant commitment and its benefits are renewed rehearsed refreshed each week God reaffirms his pledge to give you eternal life and each week we reaffirm our love for Christ because he wants us to be convinced and encouraged about his purpose what did Jesus say This is my blood of the covenant, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. He knows that life in a fallen world is difficult. It's hard. It can be discouraging and disappointing. And because we belong to him and he belongs to us, he wants to assure us. And this is what sustained the Apostle Paul. And this is what sustained saints of every age. Paul belonged to God just as every other believer belongs to him. Yes, I know that the Lord owns the world. The creation is his. Every beast of the forest is mine, he says. The cattle on a thousand hills. But his peculiar interest is in those with whom he is in the covenant of grace. Fear not, he says. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name you are mine. And that's why every sincere Christian can say in a very special way, I am the Lord's. I belong to him and I am his. I'm one of the beloved sheep of his pasture. And as Paul says, we're not our own because we're bought with a price. And I think it was the knowledge of God's gracious covenant that encouraged King David. You know, near the end of his life, David is old. He's become decrepit. He's reflecting upon his failures, which I'm sure were difficult to recall. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, he committed murder against Uriah, he committed falsehood and lying as he tried to hide these crimes. And then Amnon defiled Tamar, and Absalom killed Amnon, and Absalom was killed by Joab. And all of this, David felt the sting of grief and disappointment, the fruit of his iniquity. And his regrets ran deep. And apart from God, I think David had good reason to despair. But notice how he was encouraged when he diverted his gaze to the Lord, he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered and in all things secure. Ah, there's the hope. There's the reason for his rejoicing. Not me, him. You see, that's what believers do when they're downcast. That's what believers do when they're in trouble. They find their source of strength in God's solemn commitment. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. When you're downcast, where do you go for comfort? What's your instinctive response to a difficulty? Is it trying to find comfort in mere creatures? Or is it the infinite, eternal God? Now, he doesn't guarantee temporal blessings, to be sure. Material comforts, whatever they may be, your body, your name, your estate, your employment, whatever that may be, you can lose them. He doesn't promise that you and I will have them or keep them. Look at Job's experience, for example. But he does promise eternal blessings and everlasting comforts. Or the, what does the hymn say? Solid joys. I love that phrase. Solid joys. Changes and providence will come and earthly comforts will be given and taken away. And we shouldn't place too much value on them. But God has made with us an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. So, we draw comfort from the covenant because of the identity of its author and the things that he's put into it. He's pledged to eternally bless and preserve those within the covenant of grace. And because God is the author, this salvation is a done deal. You and I can enter a covenant with each other, we can try to keep it, but we're frail, we're weak. We're changeable creatures. Death might prevent us from fulfilling the covenant. We don't control the variables of life. We struggle against sin. So we may not be able to hold up our end of the bargain. But not so with God. When and if God makes a covenant, it cannot be broken. Neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And just think what he's included. It's not just the covenant's author. It's content. When you sign a contract for a new job, some of you have gotten new jobs recently. What's included in the contract is important, right? I hope hope so. The hourly wage, the yearly salary, the personal benefits, the amount of vacation, all these things are important. Similarly, when we're interested in the covenant benefits that God gives, we look at them and try to decide, oh, these are wonderful. He freely offers life, salvation, and the Holy Spirit. And as a believer, you're joined to Christ and partake of his mediation, and he gives you eternal life, and it's a better bargain than you'll find anywhere else at any time. God wants to be our God, and he wants us to be his people, plain and simple. He gives himself to you, and he enables you to give yourself to him. And thus is formed this marvelous mystical relationship with our Maker. And all you have to do is receive Christ by faith. So, on the one hand, Paul's faith was strengthened by his covenant relationship. But on the other hand, it was strengthened by his privilege of worship. See what he said? The God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And this privilege grows out of and flows from the believer's covenant relationship. I find it fascinating that God rebukes those who would usurp the privilege of covenant worship. Listen to what he says in Psalm 50. He's speaking to the wicked, to the unbelieving. And this is what he says. What right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips. What right do you have? The so-called worship of the ungodly is repugnant to the Almighty. Proverbs 15, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Sinners, like you and me, apart from Christ, have no right to draw near to the throne of God. But the Christian who is united to Jesus is welcomed in God's presence. That's a privilege. The believer enjoys this inestimable privilege of approaching the throne. And the Lord extends the scepter of mercy in Christ and receives him or her. And in response the grateful believer renders covenant worship and service. That's what the word means. It's either worship or service or both. When a true disciple is called into fellowship with Christ, he or she desires to serve and worship. He no longer serves his own desires. He now wants to please the Lord. He embraces Jesus not only as his Savior, but also as his King. He knows that Christ is not only to be praised as a redeemer, but served as a Lord. And as a covenant member belonging to Christ, Paul worshiped and served the Lord. When I was in college, I was not a Christian. And a friend of mine claimed to be a follower of Christ. I was ignorant of what that really meant. I I didn't know what that meant. But I sensed in him that something was amiss. There was a disconnect between the privilege that he seemed to claim and the lifestyle that he pursued. And my young friend was both immoral and perverse. His religion was a sham. My teammates often joked about his bogus profession of Christianity. It was a joke. And we noticed, you know, the world is not stupid. The world is spiritually blind. The world is unbelieving, but the world is not stupid. They know that killing and cheating and stealing and lying are wrong. Paul says, the Gentiles show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. My, comm- my friend commanded no respect He garnered no esteem. As I said, he was a joke. He spoke of the God to whom he belonged, but lived as if he served the devil. That's not the privilege that Paul was talking about. Those who are truly within the covenant are sincerely disposed to serve and worship. They have no reserve. They see themselves as enlisted in his service. With bodies, they serve him. With their lips, they praise him. With their hearts, they cherish him. All their faculties belong to him, and with all our faculties, we worship him. And in our darkest hours, it's God's covenant and our privilege that'll bring lasting comfort. Don't be shy in taking this truth before the throne of grace in prayer. Acknowledge that God has entered into covenant with you and he's always faithful. Rehearse his promises. Lord, you said that you would give me eternal life if I trusted in Christ. Consider his benefits and speak to your own soul. In human contracts, you know as well as I do, it's not unusual to review the details of the contract. We consider the agreement. We go over its terms. We remind ourselves of the benefits. I did this in our first house. Wow, look at this, it's it's ours. So in the covenant with God, we should often consider the agreement, which we're going to do in a minute. It's important to understand the terms. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's profitable to rehearse the benefits, not least of which is that we belong to the Lord. What's the song of Solomon say? My beloved is mine. And I am his. And this is the grand overarching promise of the covenant of grace. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. So do you know to whom you belong? Whom is it that you worship? There is no greater comfort than to know that with body and soul, both in life and in death, you're not your own, but you belong to a faithful Savior. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the covenant of grace, you have solemnly committed yourself to us, your people, and you have given us inestimable benefits in Christ. We thank you for that and pray that with that, you'll strengthen our faith. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.